0: Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm interviewing Nir Eyal, a best-selling author, speaker, consultant, and all-around brilliant man who truly understands human behaviors and changing the way we live and work for better results. We dive deep into proven ways to create habit-forming products, services, and customer experiences that keep customers loyal and recommend your brand over the long term. You'll also hear about how you can gain better control of your attention and reduce distractions in a world of chaos so that you deliver on the customer promise and keep commitments to other people and yourself. It's easy to procrastinate. It's easy to get distracted from social media, games, and technology that's literally ringing around us. You don't need to get distracted anymore. You can turn addictions into healthy habits that create better experiences for yourself, for your team, and everyone you interact with. While we talk a lot about customer experience and business best practices, you'll also hear inspirational stories such as Nir's experience having grown up as an obese child and how we intentionally fought against negative triggers that provides lessons for all of us, whether it's food or other means to reduce pain and discomfort. I promise you are going to get so much value from this episode, so take notes as Nir and I share a lot of gems. I hope you'll share Doing CX Right podcast with others who can benefit and subscribe to my show on your favorite podcast channels so that you can get updates and important information as I launch. Your feedback is a true gift, and I hope that you'll leave a review as well. Now let's get on with the show. Hello, near Al. Welcome to the Doing CX Right show.
1: Thanks so much, Stacey. Great to be with you.
0: I'm so glad to have you on my show because I've read both of your books and they're both inspiring, educational, and I know my audience is going to get so much value. So thank you for being here.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: So let's get into the beginning uh, intro about who are you? What do you do professionally?
1: Yeah. So I'm what you would call a behavioral designer. So I help companies build the kind of products and services that get people hooked to healthy habits. So I work across Mm. all kinds of industries from healthcare, getting people hooked onto a medical device or remembering to take their medication or uh, helping them remember to form a habit around exercise or eating right. I work with financial services companies to help people save money habitually. Uh, I work with education companies to help people get hooked onto learning a new language or helping kids engage more in school. So any type of product that requires repeat behavior where we want to form healthy habits in our users' lives, that's where I really specialize. So that was based on my, my years of teaching. I taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and later at the Hassel mm-hmm. Planner Institute of Design at Stanford and wrote this book, my first book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And my second book, Indistractable: How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life, is the other side. So, Hooked is about how do we build good habits. Indistractable is about how do we break bad habits, specifically these habits around distraction.
0: Mm. Why? Why your passion around this? Yeah. So I've
1: always been fascinated with human behavior. Uh, even from a, a as a as a kid, <laughs> I was fascinated with with uh, how products change our minds and then change our lives. And, um, it's, it's, it's kind of been an area of focus for quite a long time for me. And, and most recently I was in the gaming and advertising space. I started a a tech company back in 2007 and, um, that, that company was focused at that intersection and it was there that I learned about how companies today use technology to change our minds and then change our lives. And Mm -hmm. I became really fascinated by that. Uh, I saw a lot of my clients and colleagues using these behavioral science techniques, and I wanted to understand them better. And I wanted to kind of codify them so that other people could use the same tactics that companies like Facebook and Amazon and YouTube and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, if we could use those same psychological tricks, if you will, not just for frivolity, but for healthy behavior change, I thought that would be an amazing thing to do. (laughs) And so I wanted to learn these tactics myself. And so uh, I looked around for a book on how to do that. And I I couldn't find one. There was no such book. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to start writing it myself, uh, just for me, right, that I wanted to learn these tactics and start another company based on these tactics. But then the more I started blogging and writing, and then that turned into this class that I taught at Stanford, uh, other people turned out were very interested in what as well. And so that became kind of what I do professionally now.
0: I love that story. And I'm also intrigued that you were in the gaming industry because talk about habits. Um, mm. That's addicting.
1: Well, that's a, that's a, that's a loaded word. <laughs> and so okay. addiction it comes up quite a bit. Um, and I would argue it's actually not that addicting uh, it, it, because addiction is never that simple, right? It's kind of this word we toss around a lot. Um, but addiction, remember, is a pathology the definition of addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms the user. We would never want to harm our users, right? That, that, that's sadistic. Mm. So we never want to intentionally addict anyone. That is unethical. What we want to do is to habituate them, right? A ha- what is a habit? A habit is simply an impulse to do a behavior with little or no conscious thought. And about half of what we do every single day is done out of habit. So we have good habits as well as bad habits. And so I think we can use the tactics of, you know, whether it's gaming or social media or all kinds of other products that get people hooked, we can use that same psychology for good, not to addict mm. people, not never to harm. Remember, addiction is always uh, something that indicates a level of harm. We would never want to do that to our users and customers. Instead, what we want to do is to get them hooked to healthy habits. And it's through the amazing power of these technologies that I really do believe we can get people hooked for good.
0: Mm. What's a fun fact that people may not know about you?
1: A fun fact. Well, it's not fun, but it's it's probably relevant and interesting to my story is that I used to be clinically obese. Today, at almost 45 years old, I'm in the best shape of my life. Um, I've I've never been in better shape, but that only came about once I really started understanding human behavior. And I, I mentioned earlier that I've been fascinated by human behavior since I was a child, and and that's because I was clinically obese starting out as a child, and and I'm not just talking about overweight. I mean, I was, I was you know, taken to uh, uh, you know, the doctor at an early age, and my, I remember the doctor looking at the chart and saying, okay, here's this chart on the wall, and telling my mom, look, here, here's normal weight, here's overweight, here's you, right? Here, here's your kid, your son is, uh, is over here in this red category of, of obese. And um, that really did shape my fascination with this topic, because I remember feeling like food controlled me, and um at first i remember blaming the food uh you know blaming the food companies for doing all these evil things to me uh and there is some some grain of truth to that i think that there is a lot of deceptive practices in the food industry a lot of subsidies a lot of sh- chicanery that uh do- really does hurt the consumer and, and should be regulated away but at, but really that's that's the margins the real source of the problem was that i didn't understand my own relationship with food uh that I wasn't eating because I was hungry. I was eating because I was lonely. I was eating because I was bored. I was eating because I felt so much shame and guilt about how much I had just eaten. And mm. uh, coming through all that, there's a common thread and that I think today, there's a very similar relationship with distraction. That we say video games are addicting us. We say that uh, social media is hijacking our brains, that it's stealing our focus. And these are very disempowering terms. And to be honest, it wasn't until I started understanding my role in shaping my behavior that I could do something about it. And it's not easy. Uh, nobody's going to do it for you. And it was a very hard journey. I still struggle till this very day. But I think that was this common thread. I think that that because I had that early experience of obesity and coming through all that, I think that, that, that kind of empowered me to look at the world a little bit differently. I think the knee-jerk reaction today is that all these things are being done to us because the victim mentality is is kind of a a passive state. You don't have to do very much if you think, oh, social media is doing it to us and the food companies are doing it to us. But of course, we do have a very large role to play. And so my job is to show folks how they can empower themselves in some very simple ways, frankly. It's much easier to, to, to do things yourself uh, than it is to wait for these tech companies or the geniuses in Washington to fix the problem.
0: So would you say that You were hooked on food and you figured out the psychology to reverse it so that to be hooked on healthy, more positive ways, the same principle?
1: So when we look at how do we get people hooked to our products in a healthy way, right? How do we get people hooked to exercising more or saving money or uh, being more productive at work? How do we create healthy habits with the products and services that people use that we make? Mm -hmm. Or how do we break the bad habits that we have in our Mm -hmm. own lives that we sometimes you know distract us from living the kind of life we want? At the core of both of those directions is understanding that all human behavior is done for one reason and one reason only. And this is this to me is is kind of a an earth shattering realization in that the traditional paradigm that what we do is about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, right? This has been around for a very, very long time. Jeremy Bentham talked about this. Sigmund Freud called it the pleasure principle. This idea that, you know, carrots and sticks, we've all heard about carrots and sticks. Turns out that neurologically speaking, this is not true. This is not why people are motivated. People are not motivated by carrots and sticks. People Mm. are motivated on a neurological basis by just one thing, that all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort. That's it. That's it. Everything you do is about to modulate, is about modulating your mood, is to feel something different. Every product you use, every click, every transaction, everything you and your customer does, you do for one reason, and that is to escape discomfort. And Mm -hmm. once you realize that, that unlocks a a way of not only controlling your own time and attention and behavior, but also designing products and services that can help people modulate their mood in a healthy way. That uh, in fact, even the pursuit of pleasure, right? Wanting to feel good is psychologically destabilizing, right? Craving, Mm -hmm. desire, wanting, lusting. These things Actually, biologically, when you look into the brain as this is happening, it's engaging areas of the brain that make us feel bad. That The way the brain gets us to act is by making this discomfort, this craving for the pleasurable sensation. But the underlying root cause is the discomfort. So what does this mean? Well, if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that must therefore mean that time management is pain management. I would go further and say, weight management is pain management. Uh, uh, money management is pain management. All of these things, if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to es- escape discomfort, that means that all that everything we do is about managing our discomfort. And once you learn that, once you know this this cardinal principle, you realize it's just a feeling, right? That if you can if you can engineer, if you can design a product to help the customer deal with an uncomfortable sensation in a healthy way, or you can design practices in your own life to deal with uncomfortable emotions in a healthy way as opposed to a harmful way. You're truly in control of your attention and your time and your life.
0: So you said a lot about feelings, sentiments. So now we live in a world of robots. And artificial intelligence and all these things that are non human. So, what's your view on how we coexist?
1: I think the same way we always have as a species, right? No matter what the scary sounding new technology is, what we've always done for the past, you know, 200,000 years as a species is that whenever there is change in our life, we do two things we adapt and we adopt. We adapt to these new changes by changing our own behavior, right? So we develop norms and manners around how we should behave. And I think we're seeing that today, right? I remember when I started teaching at Stanford, at every time that I would I would have a class, half my students would be on their phones. Today, believe it or not, that doesn't happen <laughs> that much anymore. People are starting to learn norms and manners around using their phones, right? That Especially younger people, older people are still catching up when i give a seminar uh, at a company it's never it's never the young folks that are that are on their phones it's the boss that wants to show everybody look how important i am look i'm checking email all the time they haven't gotten the message that you know what using your device in a social setting is actually really rude right yeah. um, and yeah. so we update our norms our manners that's the first thing we do we adapt and then we adopt we adopt new technologies to fix the bad aspects of the last generation of technologies. And so that's what you see happening today. Right? A few years ago, oh my god, Facebook is melting everybody's brain. The social dilemma tells us that it's hijacking our attention. Facebook is awful. Guess what? I don't know anybody under 30 that uses Facebook anymore. <laughs> right? They yeah. moved on to TikTok or Instagram. Or and I know Instagram yes. is owned by Facebook, yes, but it's a much health I would argue much healthier, cleaner version. People got sick of all the the politics and the advertising and the nonsense. And so they look for a better solution. And so this is what mm-hmm. people naturally do when there is a, uh, a technology that 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 threatens us in some way. We do what we've always done. We adapt our behavior and we adopt new technology to fix the last generation of technology. And I think that's what we're mm-hmm. going to, to do when it comes to AI and any other <laughs> uh, technology that may have negative aspects, which look, every technology that has a, a big enough reach is going to have some mm. negative aspect. It's like Paul Virilio, the philosopher, said, when you invent the ship, you invent the shipwreck, right? But w- When mm. was the last time you heard about a shipwreck? It's pretty rare. W- why? Yes. Did we stop sailing ships? No, we made ships better. We improved the technology so that ships became safer. And so that's, of mm-hmm. course, what we do. And so that's why I do the work that I do, is I want to inspire people to get into this industry, right? We need more smart people to get into this industry and build products that solve the last generation products problems.
0: Yeah. What are some actionable tips from your hook model?
1: Sure. Yeah. So if you are building the kind of product that requires repeat engagement, and this isn't every product, if your product is sold one time, you don't need a hook. Okay. Because you know, it's a sales-driven versus a product-led or product-driven company. A sales-driven company is one that here, here's the product. Goodbye. We don't have a continued relationship. That's increasingly becoming a smaller proportion of companies out there because we know it's much more profitable to keep a customer than to constantly have to find new customers. So you have to have some kind of competitive moat, whether it's intellectual property, whether it's um, a brand, whether it's some kind of you know some, some economies of scale or a habit. Habit can be a huge competitive advantage. So if you are building Mm -hmm. the kind of product that you need people to come back to. So enterprise software is a great example. SaaS products. If people don't use the product, they're gonna churn out. They're not gonna keep paying. Uh, so if you are building that kind of product, you have to build a hook. And a hook has these four basic parts. It starts with a trigger. We have two kinds of triggers. We have internal triggers and external triggers. External triggers are the pings, the dings, the rings, all these things in our outside environment that tell us what to do. So every habit-forming product starts with an external trigger and then moves people to associate the product's use with an internal trigger. That internal trigger is what we talked about earlier. That's that uncomfortable emotional state. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety. The goal of a habit-forming product is to attach its use to that uncomfortable sensation. And if you can't articulate that uncomfortable sensation, if you don't know what is that internal trigger that your product is addressing, you're just getting lucky, right? I meet with so many product teams that can tell me all the amazing whiz bang features of their product. But when I ask them, what's the psychological itch? What's the human need here on an on a, on a emotional basis? They can't tell me. And those are the companies that tend to fail. So you have to tell mm-hmm. me what is the emotional trigger that your product will attach itself to. That's the internal trigger. Then the next phase of the hook model is the action phase, the simplest behavior done in anticipation of a reward. The simplest thing the user can do to get relief from that discomfort. The reward is where the itch is scratched, is where we give the user what they came for. And it's not just giving them what they want. It's also having a bit of mystery, what we call a variable reward or an intermittent reinforcement, some kind of uncertainty around what they might find when they engage with a product. And then finally, there's the investment phase, which is probably the most overlooked of the four steps. This is where the user puts something into the product to make it better with use. I call this stored value. And this is really a hallmark of habit-forming products that unlike things in the physical world, your car, your couch, your clothing, these things depreciate, right? They lose value. Habit-forming products do the opposite. They don't depreciate. They appreciate. They should get better and better the more that we use them because of this concept of stored value. So that through successive cycles, through the hook model, this is where mm. our tastes are formed and where these habits take hold.
0: Mm. What a great summary. And that's, of course, now that's, in your the book- very,
1: that's a very high level 30,000 foot view. Yes. Of course, I'm giving you the, the 10 second summary of a 250 page book, but that's essentially the model that then we go into a lot more depth on how do you actually build that?
0: Exactly. That's what I was going to say that the that is a great summary. And of course, all the details are in the chapters. You talk about indistractable, and which I think every human being, every leader needs, because you can't lead a team if you're distracted. You can't deliver a great customer experience if you're not focused and intentional. Talk mm-hmm. to me about... How do you be in distracted and focused, especially as you said before, everything's dinging and these things that are luring our attention?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it starts with what is distraction? Uh, What is it really? It's one of these words that I think uh, people think they understand, but they really don't. I certainly didn't when I first started this line of research. If you had asked me what is the opposite of distraction, I would have told you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? I don't want to be distracted. I want to be focused, but that's not actually true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction, right? We have traction and distraction. Both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action, reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action that we ourselves take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from what you said you were going to do, further away from your goals, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is much more than semantics. This is really important because I would argue That any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is intent. Okay. As Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So I would argue that what many people do is that they moralize and they medicalize perfectly normal behavior. There is nothing wrong with watching a movie on Netflix, there's nothing wrong with going on social media, there's nothing wrong with. Enjoying your time and doing whatever you want with it. What? Why is watching a uh, the World Cup soccer match somehow morally superior than playing a video game? There's no difference, <laughs> right? They're both right. equally "quote unquote" potentially addictive if you overdo them, but they can also be acts of traction. So if you put time in your schedule and say, "Hey, this is my social media time," or "This is my TV time," or whatever it is, do it, enjoy it, have fun. Stop moralizing and medicalizing these behaviors and plan ahead. Do them on your schedule, not somebody somebody else's, certainly not the tech companies. Now, conversely, just as any action can be an act of traction, any action can be an act of distraction if it's not what you plan to do with your time and attention. Let me give you a perfect example. For years, I would come into work and I would say, okay, I'm going to work on that big project. Nothing's going to get in my way. I'm not gonna do anything but working on that big project. That's what I've been delaying on. I'm I've been procrastinating on it. Here I go. I'm gonna get started right now. But first, let me check some email. All right? Let me scroll that Slack channel real quick. Or, or let me just do some of the things, some of the items on my to-do list that are easy to do just to get some momentum going, just to get started. Those are all work-related tasks, right? Right? I'm being productive. Nice. What I didn't realize is that, that is the most dangerous form of distraction. The distraction that tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most pernicious form of distraction because you don't even realize you've been distracted. If it's not what you said you were going to do ahead of time, it is by definition a distraction. So now Mm -hmm. we're starting to build this model. We have traction. We have distraction. What prompts us to take these actions? We have our good friends that we talked about earlier, external triggers and internal triggers. So external triggers, like you said, the pings, dings, and rings, these things can lead us off track, but studies find that they only account for about 10% of our distractions. Did you know that? 10% of the time that we check our phone, is it because of an external trigger, a ping, ding, or ring? So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time, and studies have found this, 90% of the time that we check our phone, it's not because of a ping, ding, or ring. It's because of an internal trigger. It's because of an uncomfortable emotional state that just as we talked about earlier, boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, anxiety, stress. This is 90% of the time that we get distracted. Again, it's because of a feeling. It's because of an uncomfortable sensation that we look to relieve with a distraction. So now we have our model. First step is to master those internal triggers or they will become your master. If you don't have a toolkit ready to go, that whenever you feel bored, lonesome, indecisive, stressed, if you don't know what you're going to do with that sensation, I promise you, you're going to find a way to get distracted. Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you're going to find a way to escape that discomfort if you don't know in advance how to handle that uncomfortable sensation. So that's the most important step. Master the internal triggers. And I give you a dozen different things that you can do to have these tools ready to go in your toolkit so that when you feel discomfort, you can use that discomfort to lead you towards traction rather than distraction. That's step number one. Step number two is to make time for traction. Here, here's here's, here's a fact we have to, have to uh, uh, agree to is that you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. I'm going to say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you have a calendar with lots of open white space, right, what did you get distracted from? <laughs> right? So look, part of being an adult is that you have to plan your day. So if you're a child or retired, okay, fine. You don't have to plan your time. But if you're finding that you're like me, that you found before, you know, before I wrote this book, that you weren't accomplishing what you know you're capable of. You have these great aspirations. You say you're going to exercise, but you don't. You say you're going to eat right. Maybe not. You say you're going to write that book or work on that presentation, but eh, I can wait till tomorrow. If you know you're capable of more, a big reason why you're not doing what you said you're going to do is because you didn't plan out when you're going to do it. So Hmm. learning to base your calendar on your values, right? Turning your values into time is a critical skill. And I teach you exactly how to do that. That's making time for traction. Step number three is hacking back the external triggers. This is kind of the easy fun chapter where I teach you exactly how do you make your phone indistractable? How do you make your computer indistractable? You can do it in less than 10 minutes. Very, very easy to do. The harder stuff is the things that we don't tend to consider. Meetings. My God, what a terrible distraction. All these stupid meetings that we didn't need to attend can be in our day-to-day lives. Our kids, right? We love them to death, but they can be a huge distraction. What do we do? Especially when so many of us are working from home, what do we do about these external triggers that can lead us towards distraction? The good news is there's a system that you can use step-by-step to go through each and every one of these external triggers and hack back that distraction. The fourth and final step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we make a pre-commitment. We decide in advance what we are going to do in case we get distracted. So this is almost like a firewall against distraction as the last line of defense. And if you use these four tactics in concert, number one, make sure you master the internal triggers, then make time for traction, hack back the external triggers and prevent distraction with pacts. If you use these four techniques in concert, anyone can become indistractable.
0: Wow, there's so much to say and not enough time here. Two comments quickly from what you mentioned is that doing what you said you were going to do, gosh, that is such a pain point for me when it comes to customer experiences because so many brands don't deliver on the promise. So Mm. that can be a whole topic in itself. And secondly, I think you're... Model is so important, especially when we wake up in the morning, because hmm. I know for myself, I get distracted by some news, some email, and it's probably not the first thing I should be doing when I get up. And I need to stop that in this new year. So <laughs> I will be indistractable.
1: Excellent. And, and by the way, welcome to the club. You know, it took me five years <sighs> to write indistractable because I kept getting distracted, (laughs) right? So I wrote this book for me more than anyone else, right? It wasn't until I learned these techniques. And by the way, I had to dive into a lot of research in order to unlearn a lot of these terrible techniques that we've adopted. For example, did you know that to-do lists are one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity? I didn't know that, right? But when you look at the research... They're awful. If all you do is keep track of your to-dos on a to-do list and you don't put them in your schedule, it's one of the worst things you can do for productivity. So you're you're part of an illustrious club of fellow procrastinators like me. The good news is that this is a skill, but we're not really taught this skill. There's no class in in school on how to do what you say you're going to do. But it's the most important skill. If you can't control your attention, if you can't control your time, you do not control your life.
0: Oh, that's so good. Well, I would say that is a wonderful key takeaway uh, for everybody listening. And two last rapid fire questions, which is, if I had tons of CEOs and leaders in my room, would you say, is that what you want them to remember? Or is there something else?
1: It, 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 the message I would love to tell uh, CEOs and leaders uh, in, in every organization, and and parents, I would lump into the same category yeah. for the same advice is very useful, that you lead through example, and listen. Mm-hmm. I do so many webinars and workshops and keynotes for people who are desperate. They you know they call me in, they pay me a lot of money to teach them how to help my employees become indistractable, and then I go to these sessions and I I, I begin my presentation and. And the boss in the back of the room is sitting on their phone. (laughs) This happens all the time. This happens with parents who tell me, my kid, he won't get off Fortnite. He's constantly playing video games. They're always on TikTok. And meanwhile, they're checking email while they're complaining to me. So if you want to help someone become indistractable, your child, your employees, your organization, you have to start with yourself. You can't be a hypocrite. You have to learn how to be indistractable. Lead by example. And it's okay to tell people you're struggling. Look, I wrote the book Indistractable and I still struggle with 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 doing this every day. It's not something you ever accomplish. It's something you work on every single day of your life to yeah. be indistractable. That's part of this skill set. But it starts with leading by example.
0: Yeah. And finally, if you could go back in time to your younger self, let's say 20-year-old near, what would you say to him then? that you know now?
1: Uh, I think the message I would tell him and that I I keep telling myself even today is that we are more powerful than we think. That you're only Mm -hmm. powerless if you think you are. That we always have some sense of agency and control unless we believe we don't. And so this is why Mm -hmm. I'm so anti this ridiculous narrative that technology is stealing our focus or hijacking our brains. Give me a break. Hijacking is what they did to us on 9-11. It's not, oh my gosh, I like to yeah. you know play Candy Crush a lot. We have to put this stuff in proportion and never give up our personal power. We have way more power than any of these products do.
0: Mm, wonderful takeaway. Well, I'm going to include the links to your books and your website and your social channels in the show notes. And I know people are going to want to hear more, read more. So thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.